you know, um, one of the things that Frank said today was that he has continued listening to our sermons on Sunday mornings. And he said, I've been keeping up with this Revelation series. I'm really great about it. I want to talk to you about last Sunday's message. I said, okay, what you want to tell me? He said, uh, you told people about that affirmation of faith? I said, yeah. He said, you remember when you told me about four years ago that I should be opening that and reading it? Uh, you challenged me to read it for a, every day for a month? I said, yes, sir. I do remember that. And he said, well, I went past that month, and I went to the second month. And then I went to the third month. I want you to know I'm still reading that. And he said, it was that that, I, that changed my mind about what Bible doctrine was. He said, I began to understand, wait a minute, that's not what I was taught. This right here is right. This is the Bible. This is what the Bible says. And so he, he started doing that. He said, that changed my life more than any other single thing. Now, what changed him was the Spirit of God and the fact that he was disciplined enough to do that every morning. You follow what I'm saying? It's, uh, most, most of us lack, I shouldn't say that. I don't, what do I know about most of us? I lack discipline at times. The discipline to just continue to do things repeatedly, or the discipline to keep doing things, period. Um, you know, whether it's exercise, whether it's eating right, what, whatever it is, discipline, and, and this is another thing that um, Jocko Willink says, discipline equals freedom. When I first saw that, I said, ah, wait a minute, I'm not sure about whether, because freedom comes from staying with Jesus' word. Jesus said, if you will abide in my word, then the, you will be free. Okay? So I, I, didn't, I, I realized it's Jesus' word that makes people free. But there are, there are two ways of life all the time. You, you are a physical being and you're a spiritual being. You follow that? When, you are, when you're not trusting Christ, you're only a physical being. That doesn't mean you don't have a spirit. You do. It's just dead to Christ. It's dead to God. You're, you're not going to pick up anything from that spirit, from, uh, from Christ. You're not going to pick up anything from God. You're going to be depending on everything you do on your own imagination. You'll create your spirituality on your own imagination. You'll think up what you want to think up, okay? But when you trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have an additional, if I can say it, it's like getting a download of universal information. Why? Because in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Since in Jesus, that's where they all are, when you have a personal connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in the same place that Daniel was. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys were connected in with God Almighty, and because they were getting the downloads of God's information, they were wiser than all the other wise men. Follow that? The Word of God is what will refresh, refresh your soul, and Jesus is that Word of God. So when you have both those open, well, when you're reading uh, or when you're just staying disciplined enough to keep on with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're just downloading every day more and more information from him. You are firming. That's why he told us, let the word of Christ abide in you richly. Not, not just every other day or, you know, every fifth day or whatever it is, but every day. Take a bite out of that stuff. Enjoy it. Get that down into your soul again because that's really what's going to change you. That's what's going to change your worldview and give you an understanding of who God is and what this world's about. So make no apologies for, for believing the Word of God. It's the absolute truth. There's lots of kinds of truth out there. 
uh, you get all kinds of things that's uh, relative truth. You know, you've got, uh, I know my, uh, my Harley-Davidson motorcycle manual. It's the truth about the motorcycle. And that's as far as it can go. You, you understand what I'm saying? It tells me the truth about motorcycle. It tells me this is the problem you got right here. This is how you troubleshoot it. So that's the truth it tells me about just the motorcycle. And I've got other things, math books. They will tell me all kinds of truth about math, but not about the rest of the world. You follow on? When I read the Bible, I'm getting truth about everything. I'm, I'm getting about the truth about math. Hey, Sue, did you know that God hates an unjust balance? And did you know that chemistry requires balanced formulas? Do you know that algebra requires balanced formulas? Those all are all true. You've got to have balance in that. That's what he said right here. So anyway, so if you, if you get a chance, get the affirmation of faith and uh, read it. Let it give you some guidance there. If you read it every day, I, I think you'll find yourself in love with God. Hear that? See, and I've got my phone turned off, but a new station alert has arrived. That's, that's KMOV's weather alert. Did you hear it? That was good. So there's nothing I can do about it. So if, if you hear that, just know that the Lord's speaking to you. <laughs> if you hear that, you say, whoa, I better listen to that one. A new station alert has arrived. Okay, All right. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word. Thank you for the things we're going to study tonight, Father. We know these are important things we're looking at, and we know how important the church is to you. We want to be careful how we speak about your bride. I know that uh, you're married to her, and because you're married to her, Christ, I, I know you want us to be very careful what we say about her. I want to thank you for what you're doing. So teach us how to speak properly as your church, as your bride, and teach us how to speak about the church properly as your bride. Thank you for what you're going to do tonight. Please open our hearts and our minds that we might receive the things of God. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Tonight, we're going to talk about persecution. And we're talking about persecution because it's related to last week's message, martyrdom. Martyr is a witness. That's what the word actually means. It just means someone who's witnessed. And they're, they're supposed to be faithful witnesses. Now, remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, but you, you wait in Jerusalem. You tarry in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you shall receive power, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So we were going to receive power to be a faithful witness. Now, what the Holy Spirit was supposed to do was cause us to know what this is what the Word of God is, and speak that when we're asked about things. Not speak our own opinions, not speak our own little uh, ideas about what things are, but speak the Word of God. So um, we were to be witnesses, and we have But just because you're to be a witness doesn't mean everybody's going to appreciate your witness. Doesn't mean everybody's going to appreciate what you have to say. As a matter of fact, some people will get hostile about it. Some people may even come to the point of ill treatment because of something that you've done there. Everybody see where I'm at? So that's called persecution. So the witness and the persecution are related to one another. One might say the witness is when you're giving something out and the, the uh, 
persecution is when you're receiving something for what you just gave out, and it's not going to be a positive thing. But let's get to, to look at that. The relationship of martyrdom and persecution. Okay? To be a martyr is, in the first place, to be a witness of the person and work of Jesus the Christ. So when he said we're going to be witnesses, he's not talking about we witnessed some accident someplace or we, we witnessed uh, something that happened in our home. It's specifically about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man who has lived a perfect life of faith before God. He's without sin. So that's part of our witness going to be. Second part, he died on a persecutor's cross to pay for our sins as our righteous substitute. That, that was for our sin, not for his. He was without sin. He had nothing that he had done. If he was without sin, he should not have died. The only reason Jesus Christ died is that he received our sin on himself. Okay? So when he's dying, he's dying in our place. And then thirdly, having been buried after his death, on the third day he rose again, first of all, to demonstrate God's perfect satisfaction with his payment for, sin, for our sin. He's the only one that was ever risen like that. Uh, and that was because God was satisfied with what he had offered. And secondly, <clears throat> to give those who have trusted him for his death in their place everlasting life. So when Jesus Christ rises from the dead, you're rising from the dead. When Jesus Christ died, you died with him. When Jesus Christ rises from the grave, you're rising with him. That's how you know that you're going to have everlasting life. That's how you know you're going to have a resurrected body. Because Jesus Christ has a resurrected body, you also are going to have a resurrected body. You're in Christ. All right. So <clears throat> let her be. Persecution is hostility and ill treatment of targeted people, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. That's a definition. That's not my own definition. That's the definition that comes right from, uh, what was it, uh, Barnhart Dictionary or something along those lines. Persecution is any ill treatment or hostility shown to those whose religious or political beliefs are disagreed with or despised as well as those who demonstrate ethnic differences. So that's when, when we speak about persecution, it's one of those three things. Persecution may ultimately culminate in the death of the person targeted because of his persistent witnessing of the Christ. When the targeted person is killed for his religious beliefs, his death is called martyrdom. All right. So he's witnessed, and because he's witnessed, that make, that's what makes him a martyr, and because he's killed for that, that's called martyrdom. <clears throat> that's what persecution has done. Let her see. Persecution is the giving end of this process, and martyrdom is the receiving end. This completed loop, witnessing and suffering for it, is called filling up in the flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let's look at Colossians 1.24 for just a minute. I want you to see something that Paul wrote there. I used to be bothered by this verse. I, used to, I couldn't figure out what possibly could be lacking in the afflictions of Christ. If, if Christ died, and he died fully and completely. So what possibly could be lacking? And that's when I realized this. Christ's death and his suffering continues until he comes back again. You say, wait a minute, he's, he's already suffered everything. Yes, he did. And he's paid for everything. But you're his body. And the persecution is to go on until he comes back again. Listen to how Paul wrote it in Colossians 1, uh, 24. 
Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So he's saying that he is suffering, and it's for their sake that he's suffering. He gave witness and testimony of, of Jesus Christ, and he's now suffering for their sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay? So here's what he's saying. Because Jesus Christ still has us living for him, we're living his life. We're living it out until he comes back again. There are afflictions that are promised to us. I'll show you that in just a minute. There are afflictions that have been a promise to us because we are his body. Let's see if I can find that for you. Uh, as we, and and, and I'll, I'll just say it this way. That's the completed loop. If you're witnessing for Christ, if you're living that God in life, persecution is going to come. Now, I may come, remember, it's not always death. It's ill treatment. It's ridicule. It's, uh, uh, there are times people just frankly won't have anything to do with you anymore. They'll just break off any fellowship they have with you. They're done with you. Uh, they don't want you around because they're afraid you're going to talk about Jesus again. Man, I can't tell you the number of times I've had people tell me, um, if you come around, no gospel, okay? No gospel. Uh, my, I've had uh, a funeral for uh, even a, f- a family member uh, that I was asked to do, and they said, uh, now listen, if you do this funeral for our family, you cannot speak the gospel. I said, how can I do a funeral without the gospel? That's, that's not even conceivable. They said, what? I said, they said, we don't want that gospel junk brought up. I said, well, first, it's not junk. And secondly, I don't know how to do that without that. So you may just have to pass on me. Well, if you don't think you can do it without bringing the gospel, then I'll ask somebody else. I said, all right, that, that's, that's okay. I just, I don't know how to do one without the gospel. It's, that's what hope of life is. You know, that's what, well, anyway, so... Uh, just to get the, the picture of it there. When you witness, the completion of that loop is the suffering that comes from it. So don't be surprised if somebody doesn't want anything to do with you anymore or is upset with you or angry with you. Don't be surprised. That's how the loop is completed. Remember, they weren't happy with Jesus. They were slapping him around. They were beating him up. They were mocking him. They were doing all kinds of things to him. That was some of the afflictions he personally suffered. You may, the, the most you get usually is some, somebody just not wanting anything to do with you anymore or an angry little outburst. You usually don't get a whole lot, but it's still part of the persecution because of the witness for Christ. Now, let me just say this. If you are a jerk at work and people are upset with you because you're a jerk, don't count that as suffering for Christ. You're suffering because you're a jerk. Does that make sense? Don't, don't, don't go around saying, you know, I really catch persecution because I'm a Christian. No, it's because you're not a nice man. You're always doing something to hurt somebody. I don't, you don't think so, but it does. You know, you, so anyway, let's look at the, the second part of letter C. It is what our Lord Jesus Christ told us to expect if we're going to follow him. So persecution is what we are told to expect it if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do you suppose Jesus went to the trouble of telling us that? So that when it happens, you don't go, what does that mean? Why is that happening? Jesus wants you to know this is what you expect. 
if you're following me, if you're going to be my, my servant, you're going to be one of my friends, then you're going to receive the same thing I did. All right? So let's take a look at the, where he said that. Matthew 5.10, he said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to know that's the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And the Sermon on the Mount is happening early in Jesus' ministry. Okay? That's one of the first things he came across. That's not, not toward the end of his ministry. So at that point, very few people have persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ. They're just figuring out who he is. All right? They're figuring out what he's teaching. So he's telling people early on, blessed are you. And verse 11 goes on to say, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Once again, this is about because you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, they're saying these things. Number 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're in a good um, legacy and heritage if somebody's persecuting you because you have uh, proclaimed the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 15, 18, he said it this way, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Everybody follow that? That's for following the Lord Jesus Christ. There's persecution. There's hatred coming. So get used to it. You know, know that that's what's going to come. You shouldn't be surprised by it. Here he said again in Matthew 24, 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now notice what he said. As you go through these beginning of sorrows, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations. Why? For my name's sake. Once again, it's not because you're being a nasty person. It's because, for his name's sake, you have been proclaiming the gospel, and they're, they're going to kill you for it. All right? It was what Paul told us we should expect for living godly in Christ Jesus. Here's what he said in Titus 3.12, or 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer some persecution. No, they will. They will. That's how sure Paul was of it. Because all, all he had had for most of his life, <laughs> most of his Christian life, I'll say it that way, was persecution. And if I can say this, it wasn't always just from unbelieving people. Sometimes he caught persecution from his own group. You know, when he, when he, came, when he left Damascus and came down to Jerusalem, the people there didn't want to receive him. They didn't think anything good about him. Matter of fact, uh, ultimately, they sent him away to Antioch. He said, you're just a troublemaker. Go to Antioch. Be up there and, and do what you want to do up there, but don't, don't bother us down here, okay? But he received persecution a variety of other places as well. Let's go on to the next page. 
we can know this persecution in varying degrees will continue until the end of the age when Jesus returns. That's when Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation begins. We read this. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They weren't just killed because they were in the way of a, of a communist proposal. They were in the way of some conquest that was going on. They were killed specifically for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud, cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, now watch, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So even though these now are already present, they seeing that they are in the tribulation, they're in the first part, there's still a bunch more, he said, that's going to be persecuted, a bunch more that's going to be killed, all right? So that's still to come. So if Jesus is telling us it's going to come in the first century, and Jesus is telling us in the first century it's going to be continuing until the, book, the revelation is complete, then kids know that there's going to be persecution from first century to the end of time. It's going to be continuing all that time. You shouldn't be surprised if it comes to us. All right? So let's go to the next one. And during the tribulation, but in particular the second half, the great tribulation, we read this. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. I mean, I I don't know who these people are. Uh, you got to know. He says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now, remember, that's the second half of that seven years. These are those who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are martyrs that came from that period of time, okay? So it's still going on then. Yeah, let's look a little further on the next side. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Near the end of the great tribulation now. So we're going, now we've, we've made it through the beginning of the tribulation, we've made it through the great tribulation, now let's come near the end of it. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, we see this. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, 
who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's persecution, when you're beheaded for the witness of Jesus Christ, okay? So, Let's do a little bit of examining. We'll be in Acts chapter 8. So if you've got, you know, turn your Bibles there to Acts chapter 8. Let's, let's look a little bit over. All right. It says, uh, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, so it may sound a little different than yours. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. All right, now that's, we just want to use that, that verse right there for just a moment. Let's go back and look at this. This great persecution that broke out, it tells us Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Well, who was it they put to death? Well, Acts chapter 7, if we took the time to read it today, it was Stephen that they put to death. Stephen was giving witness and testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's using the Old Testament, okay? So follow what we're saying here. Uh, a lot of us want to use the New Testament. We're leading somebody to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's perfectly valid. Nothing wrong with using the New Testament. But could you do it from the Old Testament? Stephen is giving from the Old Testament. He goes all the way back to Abraham, and he starts explaining what everything was about from Abraham on. He explains how uh, all of Jesus was prophesied during that time, that the coming of the Messiah was foretold, and he starts telling how when the prophets came and told your fathers about that, the the prophets uh, were killed by your fathers. That's what you always do, and they got really hostile with him because he said, you guys are just like your fathers. You always killed the prophets. You always kill the people who tell you these things. Why do you always do that? Okay, They got so mad that gritting their teeth, it says, that when, when they got that angry, and you can see they were starting to pick up rocks, it says that Stephen looked up into heaven and said, I see him. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. He was seeing Jesus. And that made them even more angry. Because that, that meant that Jesus is still alive. That meant that Jesus was resurrected. That meant that their attempt to kill the Messiah didn't work, that he's still very much alive. And it would also mean that they are guilty of his death and he could be coming back to avenge his own death on them. You follow that? That's why they were scared. That's why they were worried about this. Well, let me go on a little further with you because I want you to see where this, this, where this goes. Because that's what they did, they, um, they stoned him to death because they were upset and angry with him. They stoned him to death. Well, here's old Paul or Saul at that time. He's standing over here, and they're saying, get my coat, man. I want to I I know that I've got all the strength about me. I want to make sure my rocks can be thrown the hardest they possibly can. Uh, you, you got to get the picture of this. This, when a stoning takes place, the goal was to do as much damage to that person you possibly can. They knew that a good throw on the head would take them out pretty quick, so they didn't want to always throw the, to the head. They wanted to hit them as many different places as they could, but they wanted to be as hard as they could. 
and they wanted to make that final stone throw, one that would crush the brain, crush everything about them, would really hurt that individual. They didn't want any coats being in the way. So they take their coats off, and Saul, who's so happy about them taking this guy out, he's holding all their coats so they're not laying them down on the ground. That's what it means in the first part of this verse when it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. All right. So <clears throat> our, our number one says in Acts 7, we have a record of the effective witness of Stephen in speaking of Jesus being the Messiah as a part of the flow of biblical history organized by the sovereign God and opposed by those alleging to be his people and speaking for him. They were not his people. If they were his people, they would have been trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? In their rage over his undeniable witness and their inability to give him a good answer to his points, they took off their coats and gave them to Saul, seeking to be freer to throw rocks without the encumbrance of outer clothing. They killed Stephen and felt justified doing it. They became a part of Babylon's desire for blood. Now, I just want to come back to this again. Babylon is a fantasy. Babylon is illusion. Babylon is our worldliness. Babylon is us inside. When we speak of Babylon, we're talking about a mindset that's willing to shed blood. And these guys are there. Remember what it said? That Matter of fact, just put your finger right here. Let's go back over to uh, Revelation 17 for a moment. Because I want you to see what is Babylon about <clears throat> let's look at um, well, we, we've already been through quite a little bit so let me, can we just go to Revelation seventeen six? and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus when I saw her I wondered greatly now do you get the picture of what she's doing she's drunk with that Guys, she's consuming as much of the blood as she possibly can. She wants the witnesses of Jesus dead. She wants a persecution of God's people. She wants that to take place. That's her desire, and she's drunk with it. She's got so much uh, hatred and so much fantasy going for her, she's drunk with that. All right? So uh, that's, that's what, I'm, what I, when I say Babylon uh, becomes a part of it. She is seeing their anger. And if I can say it this way, when she sees your anger, she inspires it. She gets anxious about that. She gets excited about that. And she will ag you on to do even more. Uh, that's, that's where you'll lose control. That's when Babylon is in control. Everybody follow where I'm coming from? And when you get a lot of people just like that, you're going to have a great persecution breakout. Because she's not satisfied with just one little martyr. That's good, but all that does... Uh, we had a dog that was uh, on our farm. And we had chickens. We had guineas, we had geese, we had a few things. But uh, we didn't have geese on that farm, not that one. My parents and grandmother were always concerned about the dog because they knew this. They wanted to make sure the dog was never in the chicken house. And they said, the reason we don't want the dog in the chicken house is because once they taste an egg, 
they'll never go back to anything else. They'll go searching for eggs. So we began to understand, don't let your dogs get in, because they become an egg-sucking dog. All right. And sure enough, this dog, one of the chickens didn't want to have the, didn't want, she didn't want to lay her eggs in the, the chicken house. She wanted to lay her eggs out because she wanted to hatch them all. So she had a nest, and the dog found it. When the dog found it, I mean, he tore those eggs up, just eating the yolk out, eating the white out, just eating that up. We had to get rid of the dog. You can't have a dog on a farm that's an egg-sucking dog. You just can't do it. Babylon is a blood-sucking, horrible person. One martyr will never be enough. There's always an inspiration by her to kill as many as you possibly can. That's what's the story of Babylon. That's why she's the mother of all harlots. That's why she's the one that gets it all started. She's not the only one who does that. There's a lot of people that follow her that do that. A lot of her daughters follow that same thing. Everybody see where we're coming from? I hope I'm making myself clear about Babylon. This is, this is an important part of understanding the last days. All right. Let's look at number three. Number three in our uh, letter A under number two, or Roman numeral two, the mood of the unbelievers in Jerusalem is victorious and self-righteous. If I can say that, what you have now is the joy of an egg-sucking dog. They have been putting up with this cult, this sect that's moved its way in there, and the members of this sect and cult have been saying, you guys killed Jesus. And because you killed Jesus, uh, you're, you're going to pay for that someday. But right now, he would forgive you. If you'd come to the Lord Jesus Christ, well, they were tired of it. They did not want these people accusing them anymore of the death of Jesus. They didn't want these people now saying that the, the temple way is not the right way. Jesus is the right way. They didn't want any of that anymore. They were tired of it. They'd been putting up with it now for about three years. So that's about how far we are into this thing. For about three years, they've been putting up with that, and they didn't want to put up with it anymore. So once they had this passionate, angry outburst that killed the, um, this one martyr, they began to realize since the Romans didn't do anything to stop us, since the Herod didn't do anything to stop us, then we have a free run. There's no reason we can't do more of them. And so they created a whole system of arresting the, the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ and persecuting them heavily, all right? So that's, that's how that great persecution is starting to break out. So let's get, they had killed one of the publicly vocal members of the cult that was trying to tear down Judaism. They felt they had done a righteous act with which God was pleased. If God wasn't pleased, the Romans would have smacked them. If God wasn't pleased, then Herod would have smacked them. But in fact, God didn't do anything about it. And so the desire, they had met the threat and they had defeated it. The desire to be even more pleasing to God and to wipe this heretical sect off the map in Jerusalem, all Israel was growing rapidly. Can you see the egg-sucking dog just getting happier and happier about what's going on here? It's time to kill them off. The unbelieving Jewish leadership had already arrested and mistreated Peter and John for this faith, but they had held off doing more for they thought they did not have public support. You remember when it's, they dealt with, uh, in Acts chapter 4, when they dealt with arresting Peter and Stephen and 
I'm sorry, Peter and John, and they took them back to jail. They took them away from the public scene because they didn't want the public saying, these are nice guys. What are you doing to these nice guys? Man, they're healing people. They're doing kind things to people. So they brought them into a private area where they could smack them around and talk to them the way they wanted to. They'd already got by with that. But they didn't know to go any further because the public wasn't supporting. Now that the public has done this on their own, They've got public support. Can you see it? They're reading now. We've got support to go ahead and do further treatment with this. With this outburst of passion, they now know they have, they now knew they had enough public support to put some heat on the sect of the way. Neither the Romans or the Jewish leadership had rebuked the crowd for their angry murder of Stephen. Perhaps the tide had turned their direction. They would enlist some help from Herod. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Okay, so they went to Herod, and they sought opportunity to go and arrest the people of the way. Saul is going to be one of those who gets the who gets to be deputized to go and arrest people of the way. That's going to be a part of his persecution of them. Chapter eight begins by letting us know that Saul was consenting to this killing, believing he was doing God a favor. As a result of this passionate action. The opposition toward the opposition cowards grew more bold and a great persecution broke out. When the persecution broke out, it was zealous and became great enough. It was no longer safe to live in Jerusalem. They fled to the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Okay? So that's what's going on. Man, you don't have your home anymore. You're losing everything. And people, because of that, you had walked out on Judaism. As soon as you left your house in Jerusalem, they felt it was their property. They could now sack your home because you had been a heretic anyway and you weren't coming back anymore. They weren't going to let you come back anymore. You were losing your jobs. You were losing your income. You were losing your family. You were losing the privilege to be in synagogue. You couldn't do any of that anymore. You were losing everything. Everybody follow where I'm at? Okay. This, is, this is really, um, I'm thinking back now as uh, uh, the first time that I went to uh, India. That first time, we went to the north and visited up there, but then we came down to more south-central. And we came, there was uh, not, not far from the Bay of Bengal, so we were not south-central down there. And we were going down there, we were supposed to help some guys who had been through persecution. I didn't know what they meant by persecution. So I just knew that they, they were now in this coastal city, and we were going to go even further in a coastal city. So I started asking, what, what do you mean by persecution? Oh, my goodness. Uh, when we started walk, talking with these guys, they were extremely bitter, very, very upset. They had been in their villages way out in the country, and out in those villages, they had been friends with people. They set, set up churches in those villages. They'd been friends with the people there. The people had all been good neighbors with them. They'd shared food with each other. They'd grown food for people there and been, uh, had orphan ministries and all kinds of things there. But a few of the Hindu leaders brought a lot of liquor into the villages and celebrated the Hindu gods and so forth in that village and got a bunch of people drunk, and they attacked the church. They attacked the pastors. They attacked those people, and it was brutal. Um, they, they beat some pastors to death. 
They'd set them uh, in the middle of their house, set the house on fire, burn them, and they made sure their wife watched it happen. They held her there so she'd have to see it happen. They would rape her, and then she'd, they'd beat her up and send her away. So she would go into the night, into the dark, no place to go, no, no way to move around with no one who's willing to support her. No one would take her in. And that happened repeatedly. And some of you remember we, had, uh, we helped some of the widows who were in that. They were now in, a, we put them in a refuge, a safe place, because they were, they were going to be uh, witnesses to the slaughter that took place there. And uh, that was, guys, 10,000 people were displaced during that one little episode. 10,000. And to, to talk with those guys and to see the hurt and the pain that was in them, uh, man, it, it, was, it was very rough. They, they couldn't, even as we would uh, be talking and giving some lesson, you could look and there'd just be grown men, there's tears streaming down their cheeks as they're remembering what it was all about. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful to God that he gave us really the right words to say to the fellows, and a lot of healing took place in that one week of time we had with them. It was fantastic. It, it, God melded us to those men. They became important. I saw them a second time then. And man, as soon as I saw them, they were just all over. They were saying, you know, I'm, I'm free now. I'm not bitter anymore. I know now, you know, I'm, I'm still brokenhearted about my wife being dead or my children being killed or all the whelps I have on my back because I was beaten with canes. I'm still, you know, I still feel all that pain, but Jesus is my Lord, and I know. It was just, guys, it was so exciting. Well, this is what's going on. These are people turning on their relatives. This is people turning on their close friends, and they're beating them. They are persecuting them. They're trying to get them out. They don't want them around. And, and Saul is now, he's got a license to go any place that there is a report of people of the way, arrest them, bring them back, and so that they can go through these same kind of persecuted trials, all right? But let me get this. Let's look now at letter B in our outline. From God's perspective, <clears throat> how he used the persecution man created to accomplish his great will in spreading the gospel. Let's go back to 8 just for a moment. 8.1 eight, eight, had said this, Saul was hearty, in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea <coughs> and Samaria, except the apostles. <coughs> Excuse me just a minute. Um, some devout men buried Stephen and made lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Then it says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. Now, look, let's, let's see if we can back this up. Um, Number one under our outline, God had already told his little flock in Jerusalem that they were going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. The purpose and result of this power is to make them witnesses of him. Here's what Acts 1.8 said. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Do you see a period there? No. It goes on further to say, 
in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. Everybody follow me? There's an old saying that goes this, if you don't practice Acts 1.8, you'll get Acts 8.1. Okay? If you don't practice Acts 1.8, you'll get Acts 8.1. So if you don't practice what he said to do, where were they supposed to be witnesses? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, where were they staying? Jerusalem. They had a good church going. You follow that? I mean, this, is, this is a good situation they've got. Just think, the widows are taken care of. The poor people are being taken care of. People are sharing things right and left. There's more and more people being added to the church. You've got praise and worship services going on every day at the temple. It's not just on the first day of the week or the seventh day of the week. They're worshiping there every day. They're showing up in the temple. They're being taught by the apostles. They're learning things. They are singing. They are praying with each other. They're having the Lord's table each day. They're sharing their food together. Why would you want to leave that? You follow me? They didn't want to leave that. If it hadn't been for the persecution, they would have stayed right there. But that's not what they were told to do. They were told in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. All right? So if you're following me up, up to this point, the believers have been content to remain in Jerusalem, growing a powerful, wonderful church there. The only witness that was getting out of Jerusalem was that of those from the diaspora, what had received the Holy Spirit in, while making the trip to Jerusalem during Pentecost, who had trusted Christ then. Now, here's, here's what. Remember, when, they, when the church began, they were in Jerusalem. It was the day of Pentecost. And all these people from way back over on the east of Jerusalem to the west of Jerusalem, that went all the way from uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, from that area there, all the way back over to Spain and all the points in between there. So people, from, Jewish people that had been scattered out that far had now come back to Pentecost as they were supposed to do. Every male every, had three times a year he's supposed to show up in Jerusalem. And no airplanes. Yeah, that's right. You're going to have to pay for tickets to get there. You're going to walk a lot. You're going to ride on boats a lot. And that could be a dangerous trip. That's not always a safe trip. So uh, they are in Jerusalem, and they're hearing the gospel. But they can't stay in Jerusalem the whole time. They're going to have to leave sooner or later. When they leave, they are taking the gospel with them all the way back to the places they were from. So now they're going to start telling everybody in all those places, there's a gospel. Now I want you to get the picture too. There are Jewish synagogues Every place, there are 20 or more Jewish men gathered there. So if you've got 20 or more Jewish men, you've got a synagogue. Many of these places had many more than that. Babylon had a lot more than that. There were lots of synagogues in Babylon. Remember that? They had, when they had been exiled to Babylon, they built their synagogues there. That's how they kept their culture alive. So there are big enclaves of Jewish people living in Babylon. Some of them had been over in Jerusalem at Pentecost and had gone back and told the synagogues in Babylon 
that Jesus is the Messiah. They had actually heard about the Messiah. He's raised from the dead. This is an exciting truth, and, and people in Babylon started believing. Matter of fact, uh, Peter's going to even speak about a church that's in Babylon. Okay? There were going to be people saved. From what I can see from Chinese records, there were people that were saved as far as China. That's, that's pretty significant. That thing keeps going off. What is the deal with that? Uh, anyway, that's pretty significant. Everybody follow where I'm at? Because that, but that's all that went. He had told them they're supposed to all be scattering out. So a persecution comes. Was God in charge of the persecution? Well, God knows about the persecution. He knows it's going to be there. He knows that's part of the tool he's going to use to get them out there. Did God want the persecution? I can't tell you that because it doesn't tell us that. That's what God wanted. I can just tell you that God used that persecution to get scattered people out where they're going to speak the gospel just as he had told them to do. Fair enough? So if, if persecution comes up, kids, remember that sometimes it's for a very positive thing even though lots of people are going to hurt in the deal. All right. the, um, let's go to number five. Persecution broke out and caused people to leave the safety and comfort of the Jerusalem church. They fled into the countryside surrounding Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. You'll notice these are the very areas which Jesus had told them before his ascension they would be powerful witnesses of him. God is using persecution to expand the witness of the gospel. Now, when Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that's what he's meaning. He wants the gospel to go all around. Why? Because there are people not liberated yet. There are people who are still slaves to Satan, slaves to the gods of this world, and he wants them free. So he's using his people to send them out to get those people free. Let's go to number three, Roman number three. Since persecution is a vital part of the cycle of the witness of the gospel and its circulation through the world, what applications can we make to the church of today? Letter A. The formation of America, largely out of biblical principles applied by the descendants of generations of European wars, religious persecutions, religious turmoil, denominational tyranny, theological misunderstandings, and confused roles of what the church was to be in the world, the church in America has had a pretty good history of lack of persecution for a couple of hundred years, at least from the government. Now, that doesn't mean that every church always had it real well. Sometimes there were people that lived in your community, didn't like that church being there, they persecuted. Okay? But for the most part, uh, we've had a pretty good run, you got to admit. We haven't had a great deal of persecution. So for us, the thought of persecution seems completely foreign. That can't possibly happen. This is America. We have religious freedom. We have First Amendment freedom. You can't do that in America. Kids, all it takes is one angry, passionate move. You already have people you know that don't want the church around. They don't want Christians around. They want a world that's not driven by that. Well, let me, let me go further with this because I, I want you to see this. Remember, the people who formed what we know as America, not talking about who formed California. I'm not talking about who formed Texas. I'm not talking about who was forming Wyoming or Minnesota or any of those places. I'm talking about who formed what we know of as America. Those people all had come from generations. I mean, you, you have to think about how many hundreds of years 
did they live with all those people who persecuted, who fought all the time, who the, the church and the empire, you couldn't separate them sometimes. They were, they were one and the same thing. Who All those people who went through all that kind of persecution, remember when they came here, that's what they wanted to get away from. And they wanted to form a place that wouldn't have that. So they formed a place based on biblical principles that you could live with some freedom from religious persecution. Everybody with me on this? That's what they're forming. All right. Now, and that's what gives us... In the 20th century, that's last century, not the 21st, the 20th century, the church went through several serious blows to its theology, including evolution, Marxism, critical theory, higher criticism, denial of inspiration of scriptures, denial of the person or even the historicity of the Christ, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, scientism, neo-orthodoxy, neo-evangelicalism, charismatic movement, the health, wealth, prosperity movements, multiple church and denominational splits and splintering, postmodernism, public atheism, public moral scandals, pedophilia, homosexuality, dot, dot, dot. That's, that's what the church went through in just the last century, okay? It's just what, that's what they were going through then. And I can't tell you they came out real well on it all the time. There were times that we really got stained by it. Uh, you know, the fundamentalist, modernist controversy went on for years. And that, if you, if you haven't studied that at all or looked at that at all, that's worth looking into. Matter of fact, we're going to do that in our study through church history here. Because I want you to know what kind of movements actually happened. I want you to see how we got where we are. There was the neo-evangelical movement. That was a whole movement that was started pretty much by uh, Billy Graham, uh, a couple of guys from um, some seminaries on the East Coast, and what ultimately wound up being, um, what's the biggie up in the Chicago area? The, the big uh, theological, no, not, not Moody, the Wheaton. Wheaton College started from those fellows there. And they were differing with evangelicals and fundamentalists about what was the truth. Uh, so a lot of things that now Wheaton's taken a very, very strange turn. They're, let me just say this. You can't erode your foundation without costing the rest of you for what it is. And a long time ago, Wheaton started eroding their foundation. They wound up in trouble from it. Uh, so anyway... Those things are all things that took place in the 20th century, and the church was scarred and stained by it. Okay? We still have some fights going on for that. For more than 50 years, church leaders, some very prominent, have been calling the church to revival and renewal. I, I can I tell you, especially in the 80s, man, there were all kinds of things, especially you know, 1776, and 1976. When 1976 rolled around, there started to be a cry for revival. We need revival in America. Uh, then the 19, um, there was actually a, a cries long before that in the 60s, back when you had moral majority at the end of the 60s, when we had moral majority and all, there were cries for revival. Yet we couldn't get them off the ground. They just never flew. They could go so far, and then, well, I think there's some things I can show you that happened to them. 
For more than 50 years, church leaders, some very prominent, have been calling the church to revival renewal. There have been several movements toward renewal that have had good starts, but ended soon. But with each of these proposed movements has been the tendency to let Babylon run the show for us. Let me see if I can tell you what I mean. Each of those movements, the more they came about, depended more on marketing than they did on the Spirit of God drawing people to it. So the marketing processes became, what top-name speaker can we get there that people will come for this? Secondly, what top-name band can we get to come there that people will come to this rally? That's marketing, kids. That's not about drawing the Holy Spirit. And when you have that marketing campaign and you bring people together with that, you have to hold them together with that. They're not held together by the Holy Spirit. You brought them by your marketing tools, and now you have them at the meeting. You've got to hold them with those marketing tools. You can't hold them by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's not the one that organized it. Does that make any sense to you? He's not the one that organized it. Let me go, let me go a little further with you. Um, it, we depend on marketing, big-name evangelical stars, popular bands, musical and theatrical productions to get them rolling. With every movement, we must have adequate supply of Jesus junk trinkets, study guides, caps, T-shirts, marketing ploys, and it must always be a national movement. Uh, we must have the fiery enthusiast speakers to get us fired up after we've had the praise bands to get us in the right emotional mindset. We come to the rallies, get fired up, head back home to the same dead folk we left behind when we left for the rally, and we just can't get the contagion of our spiritual feelings to rub off on our brothers and sisters. We drift back into deadness and lost the desire to do that again. We get fired up about Jesus coming right away, and when he doesn't fulfill our wishes, we get down on the dumps. After enough of these false starts and boy-crying wolf episodes, we just drift back to our old Babylonian lifestyle of consumerism and consumption. Now, I know that sounds kind of ugly. That's what I meant for it to sound like. Um, truth of the matter is, I've, I've been alive for a lot of movements. I've seen them come and go. I've seen them when they had adequate people to run them, but I've seen them when we're... Th- Somebody say, are you going to be going to that? Nope, I'm not. Why? I already see what the format is. I already see what we're going to do. I see what you're, you're doing. You are doing the same promo that you would have if you were going to a concert. You have the same promo if you were going to get, Why would I want to do that? I already know where it's going. You, you, you follow where I'm at? You have to know what you're doing with these things. You can't just... Uh, Treat them in a Babylonian style and expect to get a Jerusalem result out of it. Just isn't going to happen that way, kids. All right? Let me go on. Letter D. Additionally, the church has become so worldly and so blended in with politics and the economy of consumption that its spiritual power, like that of Pentecost, has dissipated and cannot be found in any large quantities anywhere in the country. Uh, to, To look to find a church... Can, can you find good, good speakers? Yes. But kids, the church is not good speakers. When, when people talk about things, they'll, they'll talk about, oh, man, out there with MacArthur. 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 Okay, I, 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 John MacArthur's a great teacher. I'm, I'm all for you. But that's not the church. 
Yes, and he would tell you, I'm not saying anything he wouldn't say. I know him. I've, I've, I've been with him several times, and I know this. He doesn't want that. He's not looking to be a, a grand star. That's not what he wants at all. He wants the church to be the church. And you'll notice you very seldom find him in any big movements any place. That's not what he's about. He may be the speaker on some particular campaign, but I've, I've been at movements where he's been speaking, been at meetings where he's speaking, and not everybody in that place was thrilled uh, knowing, one, that he was there, number two, after he spoke. You know, because it, it's kind of like... But now I go beyond that. There's, there's all kinds of prophetic speakers because they're like prophecy. We get to, with prophetic speakers. Kids, that's wonderful, but hold the fire. If all we've got is a, a speaker, we've lost the movement already. You follow what I meant? It can't be grassroots if all we're doing is treating a speaker like he is the next celebrity. We don't need celebrities, kids. We need godly men and women who will listen who will, to what God is having to say and will live that. I'll move on so I don't get myself in any deeper trouble. Letter E. The church's evangelistic power and authority is practically non-existent. Its power in prayer is not even desired. It's dependent upon its own business and organizational tools of the flesh have rendered it simply another corporate enterprise like the Walmart centers or theaters looking for a clientele rather than the lost. Okay, now, here, Here's what I'm meaning in this. Uh, if, if we're going to have any kind, we, we are great at organizing. We're great at putting things together. And so we'll just organize the life out of it. And here, here's what happened. We organize so well that we wind up having to sponsor the organizational structure instead of what the organizational structure was created for. Is that, do I make any sense when I say that? You, you wind up now, uh, let's, let's just take a, any particular movement. And now you've got to have the right person to run that movement. And the right person requires a salary. So here's a Christian movement you give a six-figure salary for. Now you're saying, where does the payment for that six-figure salary come from? It comes from the gifts that come in that was, were thought were coming in for this thing. But instead, it's having to go now to help pay salaries of the 36 other people that are on staff too. Uh, you know, there, there are some movements that I, I love what their purpose statement says. But they send me about, here's what we need you to pray for. By the way, send your money now. And I said, what in the world? Where's your accountability? What, do I, what are you doing with that money? How is it the money is going to somehow do that? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm being asked to support all kinds of political folk in every other state but my own. And I'm thinking, why are you asking me for support for your state? You can't find people in your own state? Maybe we've, we've stated the problem. Well, anyway, I'll get past that. Here we go. Persecution, we have seen, is used by God to motivate an obedient church to greater obedience in spreading the gospel. But persecution can only be used by God as a disciplinary tool. 
uh, what I said, can also be used by God as a disciplinary tool. In other words, if the church is not doing what it's supposed to do, he can discipline them through persecution that puts them out to do what they were supposed to do, all right? Letter G. Now there is a rising feeling among those dissatisfied with organized religion, secularists, leftists, progressives, and communists, that religion, especially Christianity, has had too much power and influence in the culture. They would like this influence removed from the culture in a manner completely reminiscent of Psalm 2. Let's throw off their bonds. Let's get rid of the Christians. Let's get rid of God. Let's get rid of all that stuff. It's in the way. It's kept us from doing what we want to do and being what we want to be. I'll go on. If the cowards of the opposition can pull off, that's off, not of, can pull off an act or two of passionate rage against the church, a persecution will soon follow that will look like it happened overnight. It didn't. It has been a long time in the preparing. It's been coming. Like I said, I know people have been talking about revival in the church for better than 50 years, and it hasn't happened yet. And I've not seen that it's really going to happen very times, anytime soon. Letter I, the church should anticipate a coming persecution to correct the disobedience of the church. Wise believers desiring to please God should personally make calculated moves toward God, godliness. In other words, think it through. What's it going to take for me to be a more godly person? Don't worry about anybody else right now. This is what it's going to take for me to be more godly. What am I not doing that I should do that I could add? It's, it's kind of like uh, coming up with a, a diet. What do I need to add to my diet? What do I need to take away from my diet? What do I know is hurting me? What do I know is helping me? You, you follow where I'm at? So I'm looking at I'm making a menu. I'm deciding how I'm going to do it, and you've got to be disciplined enough to do it. Do the same thing to your spirit. What, what am I lacking? Am I letting the word of Christ abide in me richly? Well, maybe not. Maybe I'm only reading it once a week. Maybe I'm not reading it all. Is there anything you need to add to that? Yeah, you betcha. Even if you said, okay, I'm going to do six minutes every day, you'd still be six minutes better and a whole bunch better biblically than you were not reading it at all. You follow where I'm at? So think your way through. What is it going to take for me to be a more godly person? Don't, don't say, what's it going to take to have a Dave be a more godly person? How can I, how can I help Dave be more godly? No, no. Don't, don't point any other direction. Do your own. Okay, let me go to the second thing. Spirit-filled believers should take a disciplined approach to Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with God, Christ, and other serious believers even about such things as worship, and if I can go so far to say, and the Sabbath principle. I just don't think we're missing a whole lot in our freedom. We're, we're talking about our freedom, yet God rested on the seventh day not in the Mosaic law. Where did he rest? At the end of creation, right? How universal is that? Does that just cover the Jewish people? No, guys. The principle is there. One day a week to rest. One day a week, I'm not being a consumer. One day a week, I'm not rushing around trying to get something done. 
One day a week, I'm not putting myself under pressure to make sure I get my checklist done. One day a week, I'm actually spending time alone with God or with my family with God, and that one day a week has become a day of recreation to me. It's a day of rest to me. It is what God wanted for us from the beginning. He has to mandate it in, in a law when he, when he brings his, his own people there, that should be something we're thinking our way through and saying, okay, I don't have any promises about the Sabbath. I don't have any commands about the Sabbath. The church doesn't have any commands. Is there a principle? Yes, there is a principle. Do you remember when you trusted Jesus Christ, what he told you you were getting? He said, come unto me, all you are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. He is our Sabbath. You follow where I'm at? He is our Sabbath. So we're already in a Sabbath principle as it is. Why don't we think our way through that and say, one of the seven is going to be a refreshing day to me. One of the seven is going to be a recreation day to me. All right? I'll go on. These approaches are personal. We are cleaning up ourselves first before we even approach others about okay, joining us. God knows who belongs to him. He knows who he wants to rally to his cause. He looks for available and willing people, not talented folk who want to help him along to get his work done. His work is often no more than our ideas and desires packed in his wrapping paper to make it look like it was what he wanted. Number four, once we are getting our own act together by his standards, we are at the place to blow the shofar for others who might want to join the rally for Christ. Look for souls who want to be disciplined enough to form a mutually assisting group of those who will join you in the good works that have been foreordained that we should walk in. them. Let God bring you the things he wants you to do and then do them with all your heart and soul just as anonymously as you can. Number five, we should form ourselves into small, willing groups of disciples bent on doing God's will, loving what is good, and practicing it recapturing holiness and godliness, refusing to participate in lies and practicing truth telling or practicing truth telling with each other. All right. And that's our lesson on persecution for tonight. All right. Um, we have a, a lot as far as I'm concerned, guys, we've got a lot to do. And I I feel certain the persecution is on its way. When? I may be dead and gone by the time it's gone. I have no idea. But I can know this. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, not might. And it may be to our shame that we're not suffering persecution. You follow what I'm saying? It may be that it's proof that we're not living godly in Christ Jesus. Well, anyway. Father, thank you so much for this night. Thank you so much for these, my brothers and sisters. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that you'll do a work in our hearts that cause us to want to get close to you, to draw near to you, to be with you, to understand you, to uh, want, want to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, being, everything about us. Thank you, Father, for that great privilege. Thank you for the great honor that you would dare to draw us into your family and allow us to be co-laborers with your Holy Spirit. What an honor, Father. What a privilege. Thank you for that. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus, we do lift up those we've spoken of earlier who are having difficulties, some things that are happening with them. Thank you for this great report that Frank McLaughlin gave to us. Great guy, and I really appreciate very much what he, what he shared with us. 
Thank you, Father, for my brother. I ask in Jesus' name you'll minister to him. Thank you for these that we've heard about who are having other difficulties, uh, physical difficulties. We're thinking of uh, Shirley, and we ask in Jesus' name you'll touch her body with strength and healing and grant the doctors to have really great uh, information and wisdom, Father. Cause them to have the fear of the Lord so that they can have that wisdom. In Jesus' name, I thank you. Amen.